This is Safe, Stable, and Affordable, a Midwest housing podcast produced by the Polk County Housing Trust Fund in Des Moines, Iowa. Hi, I'm Matt Hauge, the Trust Fund's Outreach Director. In this episode, our Executive Director, Eric Burmeister, moderates a panel focused on housing stability we recorded live at our Affordable Housing Week Symposium. This episode is part of a series focused on housing supply, stability, and subsidy in Greater Des Moines. Following a discussion among the panelists, Micah Keel from Wells Fargo announces major grant support that will allow Iowa legal aid to expand its eviction diversion work. More details about that program are in the show notes for this episode. Now, here's Eric Burmeister to introduce our panelists. I'm going to I'm going to start the questioning um, with with my friend to the left, Ann Bacon. Ann is the uh, executive director um, of the Impact Community Action Program or partnership, I should say. Sorry, and um, and you've been in this business in many facets, um, not just housing, uh, for a period of time. Long, and I won't say a long period of time because that sort of dates us both. Um, but I think that um, you've seen family circumstances from many different from many different aspects. And so I guess I'd ask you, why um, is housing stability so important to uh, to particularly families that uh, are living close to the edge? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's so great. I just want to say looking out at all your faces and so many I've seen on a small screen um, over the last two years to see you in real life is fantastic. Um, yeah, I've been in the anti-poverty um, workforce um, my entire um, adult life. Um, I have lived experience in poverty um, and, you know, impact where I work really focuses on essential needs. It really looks at housing, food, utilities, and not only in the distribution of that assistance, but also advocating and educating on how we got to where we are and what the possibilities are for getting out um, as, a, as a society and culture. And a number I want to give you at the very outset is that for low-income children in urban settings, one in seven will experience eviction before they're three. One in seven will experience eviction before they're three. And eviction has an impact on all people that have ever been evicted. Um, if you've never had a notice put on your door, you cannot imagine the emotional toll that takes. And when we talk about trauma and the experience of trauma and what we've learned about that in providing human services, I don't know as a family other than um, direct violence, something that could have the kind of impact on those families and those children as the threat of or the actuality of losing your home because it's not just this place where they live it's their neighbors it's their community it's their routine it's their school and um, so that stability and making sure that families feel safe in that home is on the bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy. If you don't know who Abraham Maslow is, please take a little uh, jot down memory lane from your early psych classes. And that very basic level is essential for families to be able to thrive in our communities. And keeping people stable in their homes is what will help uh, elevate us all. So thank you. Um, 
our, our one of our other panelists um, is is ML Barre, um, and uh, Emil has been for the last several years focusing on the eviction, uh, and in fact, her, her organization or her program is called Unevict Iowa, and so. Um, Anne gave you a little bit of a taste of the um, of the of the data and statistics, but but Emil, tell us what you've learned about eviction uh, in in Polk County and Central Iowa, in particular, through your research. Yeah, I've been in the affordable housing space for for the last seven years, um, and um, you know, just seeing how displacement impacts, housing displacement and instability impacts our community members, our neighbors, our friends. Um, very closely being in the housing space and being a social service provider for a while too, um, you know, I, I knew from experience how pervasive that, 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 that um, experience was within our community, but I didn't realize how pervasive it was across Iowa communities, right? Being um, someone raised in Des Moines and, and be, you know, having lived in cities for all of my life, I, I knew this was very common um, occurrence in, in urban settings, but I didn't realize how that, that, um, that experience was felt in rural and, and, and other types of um, um, population settings. So on, a, on an average year, our community across the state experiences about 15,000 eviction case filings. Um, that is 50, you know, 15,000, you know, less or more of our community members experiencing trauma whether they actually um, go through the process of being evicted and losing their home, that is, you know, put that aside for a moment, okay? The, the, the trauma that comes with losing your home, but just the act of getting an eviction notice um, and having that on your record, right? It, it creates barriers that multiply, that carry through the rest of your life as a renter. Um, I don't know when was the last time any of you have applied to rent an apartment or a home. One of the very first questions on that application is, have you been involved in an eviction? Um, and if you check yes to that, even if you don't check yes, I mean, they're going to do an eviction. Um, they're going to do, um, um, you know, um, uh, 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 um, a screening um, to look at your rental history you're immediately excluded. Every landlord is going to see you as a risk. Um, so that's, you know, average 15 plus or, you know, a few numbers less of our community members experience eviction filings and some end up losing their homes. And that's a, a huge trauma. Um, the way that I like to think about it is, you know, we, we've come a long way in the healthcare system. Um, prioritizing prevention, right? And understanding how cost effective it is to prevent health um, issues um, and seeing that as a long-term investment in our community. Eviction prevention and housing stability is preventative care. That's going to save us a lot of money long-term. Thanks for that. I know that um, uh, pre-COVID, there was a lot of talk around a, a book uh, called Evicted that um, I think many people at the time um, read. And 
I think that the information in that book, um, and it, it, it focused on the city of Milwaukee and followed um, a number of both landlords and, um, and tenants through the eviction process, uh, really did cite the kinds of, of issues that, that this most extreme form of housing, um, housing instability that is eviction uh, created. Uh, but it also um, focused on landlords and the issues that that they faced with tenants who, for whatever reason, uh, were unable to maintain their housing. And I think uh, now that I, I sit here and think about it, Shane, I think it's it probably talks a lot about and is an example of that balancing of interests between property owners and tenants um, that at some point uh, when we start talking about um, ways to um, make eviction rare um, that, that we have to balance. And so I know that um, Nick Smithberg from Iowa Legal Aid is is been involved and maybe you can talk about the kinds of things that that uh, legal aid has been involved in both sort of voluntarily, but also whether or not there are larger policy uh, considerations that would provide tenants uh, more stability and protection from eviction. Sure. Well, let me start by saying uh follow up on what Ann said. It is a pleasure to be here. I, I have spent in the past couple of years many, many hours across the screen from Ann Bacon uh, helping to devise a statewide eviction diversion program, which I'll talk about a little bit today. This is only the second time I've been in the same room with her. <laughs> so to be here in grown up clothing and to talk no, to these nice people, no. it really is just a joy. Yeah. Well, you know, we may have to go back soon. But no, I, you know, the, the thing about evictions uh, is that it becomes so routine and so kind of force of habit that sometimes I think the players in the market forget about sort of what's the larger goal here. And at Iowa Legal Aid, you know, we, we were kind of thrust into the forefront of an eviction crisis that really uh, came into stark focus during the pandemic, but was also something that had been going on for many, many years. The eviction rate in this state has been going up for the better part of a decade. And if anything, actually, the numbers during the pandemic were somewhat suppressed because of the availability of rent assistance and various eviction moratoria. But even within that environment, we saw how the eviction rates kind of interrelate with a lot of other uh, vulnerabilities in society and inequities, frankly. And so, you know, in our work, uh, we've seen very disparate number of communities of color and people with disability and women who are impacted by this. Uh, but it's also you know, at some levels, it's a problem. And, and this is really where I think in the past couple of years, our work has been very, very important to me is we've tried to put together a system to solve the problem. Now, I'm in a room with a bunch of landlords. So let me just say this. At Legal Aid, you will not hear me say cancel the rent. OK, we understand that 
many of our clients live in properties that would like we call onesies and twosies with the smaller landlords. And if the rent doesn't get paid, the mortgage doesn't get paid, the roof doesn't get fixed, and you can't solve the problem. And so what we've tried to do in the past couple of years is put together a more holistic and systemic approach to this, which is what the eviction diversion project was all about. Uh, it started with an opportunity to put legal help and rent assistance in the same place at the courts where eviction cases were heard. And so that simple basic ingredient has grown into a statewide network with dozens of stakeholders and partners where we approach it from a very holistic uh, kind of standpoint. So we bring legal assistance, but also that that brings uh, resources to the tenants to help them pay the rent, right? A lot of what we do is getting at those basic needs issues and saying, well, what's getting in the way here? Is it, uh, you know, is, is there a public benefit that's not getting paid? Is there an unlawful collection? Frankly, is there an issue with domestic violence, which is about a quarter of our cases, which can be devastating in terms of the income stability of families? Um, we have succeeded with this initiative in preventing literally with our partners tens of thousands of evictions in the past couple of years, tens of thousands. And we didn't do that alone. We did it with the partners. You know, the, the, our, our keynote speaker was talking about, you know, like the collaboration. You need all the pieces and you need all the pieces working together. And so that's legal help. That's rent assistance. That's case management. That's looking at underlying causes and bringing that all together. And, and I think to sort of circle back on like attitudes about eviction, the thing that has been most gratifying to me in all of this is that we're actually kind of creating a new set of expectations, a new marketplace, if you will, where uh, landlords and tenants are trying to fix the problem with the rent assistance rather than filing the eviction case, rather than having that be just the habit that you go to. And to my measure of success, in terms of like when you talk about the record that people have, is the number of eviction cases that didn't happen because of this. The, the rent got paid, the problem is solved, you have stability, and you don't need to go to court. Funny to hear this from a lawyer, right? The one part we don't actually do is the best part, but that's the result we're going for. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Nick. Because I think that um, again, as as I sit up here and 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 know this panel, because we've we've many you know we've worked together now for a couple of years on this program that here locally we call the Justice Center Project. Um, we know that. <clears throat> And I think I can probably, you know, say it from the most neutral position. Certainly, we've had tenants that have um, left the program unhappy. We've had landlords that have left the program unhappy. But I will tell you that the greater good for the vast majority of both the landlords and tenants, it has been a situation where landlords have been paid and tenants have remained housed. And I think those are the kinds of things that that when Shane talks about figuring out why we all just don't stand in our own corners with our, you know, with with the box 
boxing gloves on, ready to duke out somebody, duke it out with somebody that we see as, um, you know, our our uh, enemy um, or our adversary. We've been able to figure out a program that works for both sides, at least works for both sides 95 percent of the time. And so I think that's that's sort of uh, probably what we're we're going for. But I also know and and want to talk about the fact that while eviction is probably the most traumatic instability a a family can endure, um, there are other instability issues out there that uh, don't necessarily involve eviction. And one of those is what has become um, uh, the, I'll call it up marketing of our naturally occurring affordable housing in this community. And the number of affordable units that are being lost mainly and very often to private equity groups from both coasts. Thank you, Shane. Uh, from both coasts that are coming in and snapping up these apartment buildings and simply raising the rent. Um, since I don't know who's in, in the room exactly, every time, I, so I get all of these notifications from the various uh, brokers. Uh, and every time I see something come across uh, my email that says now advertising value added apartment building, I know what that means. That means, well, here's an apartment building where rents are low Maybe he needs a little spiffing up. And if you come in and you buy this, you're going to immediately be able to increase the rent to the tenants in this building. And so, Nick, I'm going to kind of, with that introduction, I'm going to kind of kick it back to you to a recent uh, uh, issue that we were both involved in on a couple of apartment buildings on the south side that we saw as um, um, being, frankly, emptied out by these uh by these corporate landlords or private equity groups? It, well, I mean, this is pervasive, uh, you know, it, it, and it, frankly, it's not just apartment buildings. We, we, we've been involved uh, with a number of manufactured housing communities that have seen their properties swooped up. And look, the market's going to do what the market does. And if you don't put some inhibitors in terms of uh, some level of stability, that's how people are going to get driven out. And, you know, I'm not here to talk about policy. I'm not allowed to. There's a nice man with a book over there, though. And you, you can certainly uh, there's some great <laughs> ideas in there. Uh, but, you know, it, it really does get to a larger problem, which is when when you exclusively commodify the the ability of people, to, renters to live in their house without looking at the, the larger social aspect to it. There are costs. There are costs that, that you're going to pay in different ways. And to your point, Mal, you know, when and both, I mean, when you talk about trauma and, and, and the, the fallout from evictions, look, if you don't want to pay on the front end, we have a community schools project in different like low income elementary schools throughout the state of Iowa. And we see the after effects of the trauma on the children who suffer from instability. And so that's your future. That's what you're playing with there. So to me, the stakes are very personal. 
So, um, Emil, I know that uh, since we've been acquainted with one another, you've been at uh, two different um, uh, housing communities here in Des Moines, one with Common Bond and now with Oak Ridge. Um, what what do you see as the um, advantage of those kinds of communities and neighborhoods, and I'll call it that, um, in providing this stability to uh, families who in many cases are living on the financial edge? I think at the core of, 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 of the working model of, of, of both of the organizations that I've worked for is recognizing that family stability, household stability, equals landlord stability, right? It's it's stable operations across the, the border, right? Um, and and with that recognition and, and valuing that and honoring that, um, putting resources into place to ensure that families have the 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 what they need to be able to navigate community resources when um, you know precarity becomes real, right? Um, we have a lot of community members in Iowa and across the country that are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, so they are little, you know, and, and some of them are consistently laid on their bills because they don't have the means to be able to sustain themselves, the financial means to sustain themselves. Right. Um, so putting resources in place, um, case management, support services to help them navigate community resources. It's it's a difficult job to navigate community resources, by the way. I don't know. You know, um, it's like trying to file your, your, your own taxes, much more difficult than that. Um, but putting resources in place and, and recognizing that, you know, household stability is also community stability. We, we need our households and families um, and older adults, um, single adults to be stable so that way we as a community are stable as well and thriving. Right. Um, you know, going back to your comment on uh, naturally occurring affordable housing loss, the city of Des Moines alone last year lost 530 naturally occurring affordable housing units. And, you know, the properties that you talked about were two of them. Um, that's 500 plus households in our community displaced because of ownership transfer. Right. Um, that is, you know, devastating for me. You know, I, I, I mourn about about that quite often. Um, just to see the level of displacement and the pervasiveness, the pervasiveness of that. Um, and also knowing that this is going to continue. It's going to be an ongoing issue um, that we're not going to be effective at uh, dealing with unless we have policies and resources in place to prevent such occurrences. So, um, and what other areas um i think that that uh, emil just said you know people just simply don't have enough money uh to pay all the bills well what are some of the other bills i guess what are some of the other things that impact does that having the ha being cost burdened as we call it in our business is 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 causing for for our families well, if any of you have looked at your Mid-American bill um, <laughs> this year, the, I mean, it's 100 percent. It doubled. Um, we've had to explain to families over and over again, you know, uh, they, we weatherize houses and they call us and they're like, well, you said my bill would go down. And we're like, yeah, but you got to look at the therms. And I mean, you know, we get, <laughs> how do you explain that to a family? Um, you know, the cost of anything. If you're a person of means 
and I'm going to guess that the majority of people in this room are people of means and it grinds your gears that your gas costs more and you, it's going to cost me, you know, my gas, I, I pumped it yesterday and it cost me a Starbucks venti Americano. <laughs> I mean, wow. Okay. So for me, that's an inconvenience, but the families we're talking about when they see a hundred percent increase in their utility bill or, you know, a 20% increase in gas prices, it's debilitating. And it, it's not only become a choice between, you know, rent and utilities and food. Um, suddenly they can't afford any of those things. And when we think about stability in that context, um, the, the federal government through the Treasury um, did the emergency rental assistance program. And in the, in the way we looked at it, um, getting people caught up on the rent was one step. Being able to stabilize out for a few months to give them a little bit of breathing room was even more imperative, believe it or not, um, because... Um, when you are financially stressed in that way, nothing magic is going to happen in the next 30 days that suddenly makes it possible for you to meet all those needs. And almost all of our programming, even our stability program, doesn't always think about that, that paying this month's rent does not actually create stability. Um, so all of our programs try to look at those issues. Um, one of the great things about energy assistance, low-income home energy assistance program, we don't pay past due bills. We will. But if a family comes in and they apply for LIHEAP and they're caught up in their bill, that gives them energy assistance for the next three months so we can pay ahead. So the idea that when we assist people who are financially challenged, that we should just give them just enough is false because it just creates a trauma after trauma after trauma. And we have to quit looking at this problem as the individual in front of us. Okay, we, the, the issue is we need to help the person in front of us, but the actual problem is not the low income individual. There's actually nothing we have to fix about that person. It is our system, <laughs> it, is, it is what we've created around them. And so, you know, if there's any funders in the room, yes, we have to do things that help develop families. But if all of our funding is going to programming to fix those families, we're screwed. I mean, we literally as a community are because it's not the families that need fixing. It's the system. Thank you. So um, we're, believe it or not, and we knew this was going to happen. We have 36. Yeah. And Kendall's back there with her yellow. Oh, last uh, anybody that, anybody yeah. blind that can tell us that's green? The, yeah. I was going to say I can play colorblind. So, you know, the last question, and we'll just go right straight down the line here. The last question is, if you were to choose one thing um, that, and maybe it's just really to some of you, it's a summation of what you already said. One thing that you could propose that would improve the housing stability for for families in 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 central Iowa, what would it be? I may have answered this differently two years ago, um, but seeing what we've been seeing and what I've learned. Um, and if it was one thing right now to deal with what I feel the pressure is right now is required eviction mediation. Mm 
that um, in most families, I'm telling you, we work with low-income families every day. When they get that three-day notice on their door, they actually think they have to leave in the next three days. They don't understand that there's a process. They don't understand what they can do. And to top it off, um, most of the landlords, vast majority of the landlords we've worked with, um, and I'm going to point at JB because he's been an amazing partner through this, have been great. But I also had a landlord call me one day and say, I think it's wrong that you all are connected with Iowa Legal Aid and telling your families to call them. <laughs> because my eviction was thrown out of court because I filed wrong. I'm like, yep, <laughs> yep, that's right. Um, and so this idea of being able to provide the resources necessary to families is not just about the money. It's about helping them understand the process and having someone walk beside them and not only dealing with the legal issue of the eviction, but where are the uh, programs in the community that can help backfill the money. So again, having those uh, collaborations together before the date of the court or on the day of the court so that um, we can stop those evictions. Um, and then we'll talk about the fact that we have to change legislation so we can expunge evictions. So, For me, I, I would say stronger rent, um, renter protections, but particularly for, for families that live in existing affordable housing units that are experiencing displacement. Um, there is um, a policy that's, that's being utilized um, in various um, cities across the country called a right to return, um, which essentially provides a pathway for a household that is displaced by um, you know, the, the closure of an existing affordable housing building for redevelopment purposes to come back once that building is open for business, once that building is, is ready to be reoccupied, um, it creates space for them to come back to the community that they were displaced from. So I would say, I mean, aside from needing an affordable housing preservation strategy for the city and for the state, we need a right to return policy as well. Well, as someone who is not really permitted to talk too directly about specific policies, let me just say that Ann Bacon is someone I'm very fond of. <laughs> and she rarely says things I disagree with. Uh, I, and I will also observe, I think, that uh, the overwhelming number of tenants who, who find themselves in eviction court do so without a lawyer. And really, I think that skews the entire process in a way that is that's really not productive for any of the players involved. You know, if, if I was to say the one thing I'd like to change, it's the, the very idea that eviction is the mechanism by which we deal with problems that, frankly, aren't legal problems. These are basic needs problems. And nobody's going to win unless you fix that larger problem. And so you say, what's the one thing you would change? Well, being obnoxious, I'm going to say, actually, there's about 800 things we should change so that you don't get in that room before the judge to have that case happen, where we're addressing needs around income stability, education, health care, you know, a host of, of other issues that because at the end of the day, an eviction case is not a problem. It's a symptom. It's a symptom of other things that aren't working. And so what I'd like to do is kind of put us out of business, but also suggest that, you know, people don't like you sending people to us. We actually try and fix the problem. We're not just, I mean, we will go to court and fight the eviction case, but we also help stabilize families and put them in a place where they can keep up on the rent. And that that's that's the problem I want to fix. The best eviction case, again, is the one that doesn't happen. happen. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. All right. 
Well, thank you. I, uh, I'm, I'm going to now turn it over to, uh, to Nick um, because he has some exciting things uh, to talk about, particularly around this issue of stability. Um, and so I think, uh, Nick, I don't know if you want to speak from there or if you would like to take the... I'll stay here. So I think that was just the announcement of the announcement of the announcement you just heard. So I'll, I'll take the middle piece there. Um, you know, I've, I've talked a good bit this morning, probably too much about our eviction diversion project. Um, this is a very complicated statewide initiative that has single handedly killed most of my brain cells putting this together in the past couple of years uh, it involved dozens of partners. Uh, it's been monumentally effective. Uh, and really, we couldn't have done it alone. But it is also very, very expensive. I have dozens of legal staff working in six locations throughout the state, five days a week, uh, keeping this going both before the hearing and after the hearing. And I think we've managed to do something incredibly transformative in terms of how the marketplace functions and how the players think about it. Um, I think the need to continue and grow this has never been more profound. Even as we come out of the pandemic, the eviction rates are not going down. They're going up. And so anything we can do to enable us to continue this is of tremendous importance to me. And I think to the communities that we serve, including this one. And so with that said, I'd like to introduce Micah Keel, who is the head of Iowa Community Relations for Wells Fargo Bank, with an important announcement of some importance to me. <laughs> Nick, thank you for the kind introduction panel. We've had some amazing panels this morning and this one did not disappoint. My name is Micah Keel. I lead community relations and philanthropy for Wells Fargo here in Iowa. And I'm joined by my esteemed colleagues of immense talent behind me. We have Marta Codina, Jody Kness, Amy McCurtain, Jamie Chambers, Laura Howe. These folks represent enterprise, meaning national and international roles, as well as local, from legal, banking, diversity, equity, and inclusion, commercial banking, what's my last one, and our national housing affordability team. We are all here as a team to symbolically show how important these topics are to us as a funder and a company. We want to make sure that that's clear. And so with that, we're here to announce a $650,000 grant to Iowa Legal Aid in support of the eviction diversion project that they just discussed here today. This is really remarkable work. And I wanna, I always enjoy this part. Maybe it's my favorite in the job, but to pull back the onion on why we're supporting at this level. And as you, as you look on the slide, I'll, I'll refer to some of these numbers. But you will see on the slide that 12,928 eviction cases were filed in Iowa last year, 2021. Two thirds of those occurred in our major metropolitan centers, which you can see highlighted in blue in the various counties. We've got Council Bluffs to the west, Des Moines in the center, Waterloo, Cedar Falls, Cedar Rapids, Iowa City, Davenport to the east. Also happen to be the places that Iowa Legal Aid is working today and our partners. 
So on average, 40 41% of these evictions impact persons of color when only 16% of our state's population identifies as persons of color. That is a disparate impact to persons of color in the state of Iowa. Let's turn to another category. 66% of evictions in Iowa impact women when they make up only 50% of our state's population. And I'll just say it again, 66% of that 12,000 plus impact women. We have a problem with disparate, disparate impact here in Iowa when it comes to evictions. And finally, 30% of evictions impact individuals who experience a disability. Only 8% of our state population identifies as having a disability. Once again, eviction, evictions disparately impact people with disabilities, and we gotta help that. So I have a vulnerable disclosure here. I am Californian. And we learn, <laughs> we learn from our keynote speaker today that Californians have a problem with bragging. The moral dilemma that I have is that I'm also Iowan, right? <laughs> and we're the opposite. We don't brag very much. So what I'm going to do is thread the needle and I'm going to brag about others for a moment. I think that's the right way to go. If we look at these challenging numbers and the results that this team up here has achieved, we look at a success rate of roughly 90% of the cases they serve avoid evictions. So what's the power of that dual combo that they talked about of representation plus mitigation funding? It's that you avoid eviction in 90% of the cases. And that doesn't mean the ones that Nick pointed out that due to the mitigation fund in the new marketplace, don't even go to eviction court to begin with. We believe that this could be a potential systemic change in our state. And that's why we're investing at this level. I can also tell you, because we have a national perspective on evictions with an eviction uh, prevention portfolio, that the results that this team has achieved and our many wonderful partners in the room, they are probably the best in the country as far as Wells Fargo sees it. And that is why this investment is the largest uh, Wells Fargo investment in eviction prevention in our entire portfolio right here in Iowa. <laughs> so we definitely support systemic change that advances equity in our community. We support this effort and we'll continue to support it going forward. And I want to offer a thank you to folks who are instrumental in making this grant happen. Eric Burmeister, Molly Giller running the grants. Appreciate you, Molly. Justin Ray, also on the grant side. Nick Smithberg. They all worked tirelessly to make this happen for a year. Took little doing. Nick, we now invite you to come and receive the check for $650,000. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to this episode of Safe, Stable, and Affordable. Remember to follow us on your favorite podcast app and be sure to leave a rating or a review to help more people discover this program. Next in this series of episodes, you'll hear our final panel from the Affordable Housing Week Symposium, which focuses on housing subsidy. That will involve a discussion of several ways public investment helps build housing, maintain it, and help people afford to live there. After that, we have a special bonus episode coming where Shane Phillips joins me to answer audience questions from the symposium event. Safe, Stable, and Affordable is produced by the Polk County Housing Trust Fund in Des Moines, Iowa. Find more information about our work on our website at pchtf.org.